Welcome to the Parish Art Museum podcast, where we aspire to provide opportunities for learning, sharing, and celebrating the many innovative and pioneering artists who call the East End home. Come back each week to find new and impactful experiences in the arts. Good evening. Welcome to the Parish Art Museum. My name is Corinne Ernie. I'm the senior curator here for Arts Reach and Special Projects. And I'm really excited about this program tonight as it relates to our exhibition, Artists Choose Artists, which is the Parish Art Museum's triennial in which we invite distinguished artists from the region to select two artists each uh, who are also from the region. And they do studio visits, and so there's a networking and mentoring exchange uh, going on. And as we were doing this project, we realized that there was an emerging theme which was about the environment. So several artists that were chosen or who actually won juror are uh, very much thinking about the environment. And so tonight we explore how actually art can intersect with science to call attention to environmental issues. And because artists and scientists uh, share a curiosity about the world, but they diverge in their approach. And when they collaborate, they can come up with new ways of thinking, working, and engaging. And scientific data and knowledge can be looked at from a very uh, new and different angle and bring about new creative solutions. And we will be also joined by ecologist Carl Safina, which I'm really happy about. So the artists that you're gonna hear from are Lillian Ball, who is one of the jurors of Artists Choose Artists, Janet Culbertson, Scott Bludorn, and Irina Alimanestiano. And I will just introduce uh, to you Carl Safina before we get started. He is the first endowed professor for nature and humanity at Stony Brook University, where he formerly co-chaired the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science. And he also runs the nonprofit Safina Center. He hosted the PBS series Saving the Ocean, and he is the author of the classic book Song Song for the Blue Ocean. Carl's seventh book is Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. It's an amazing book, you should get it. His writing about the living world has won a MacArthur Genius Prize, Pew and Guggenheim Fellowships. Book awards from Lannan, Orion, and the National Academies. His seabird studies earned a PhD in ecology from Rutgers, and he then spent a decade working to ban high seas drift nets and to overhaul US fishing policy. So he's a busy man. These days, his focus is writing and speaking, and he lives on Long Island with his wife, Patricia, and their dogs and their feathered friends. And I think what's really striking is that all of these artists work in such different ways. They have such different approaches to the environment, whether it's uh, depicting a utopia or a dystopia or actually proposing solutions for the future or being actual activists and getting involved in environmental solutions. So I want to ask you, Carl, how you respond to what you just saw and how does that connect? How, how can it connect to your work? And do you work with artists or what would it take for you to work closely with artists? <laughs> A lot of it, questions. What would it take? <laughs> well, I am a scientist by training and uh, by inclination, which means that I'm interested in what's really happening in the world in a way that's the opposite of art because art is about a reaction to what's happening and... It can be be an investigation also. Don't tell me, okay? (laughs) So I I got the mic. 
Yes, of course, it can be a lot of things. But science is mostly about trying to figure out what's going on and taking yourself out of it, at least at first, so that you can objectively see what's going on. And you may, you may have impressions that you bring to it, and you have to be open to the reality being different from your impressions, or you need to be open to reality being what you wish it wasn't. For instance, when one person first told me that what humans were doing was changing the climate of the, of, you know, the heat balance of the earth and changing the climate, I, I literally out loud said, nah, because that is threatening to everything that I care about. But in looking at the information over the course of a few days, I realized that even though this is about the worst thing that I could imagine, I couldn't deny it. I didn't want it to happen, but I couldn't deny it. So first, first, if science, you need to take things in before you can react to them. So in a way, that's the opposite to what a lot of art is. A lot of art is expression, and science is in a way the opposite of that. But I've moved way away from that, and what, what is simply true is that people filter information. If you're a scientist, you want people to have the information so that they too will know what's going on and act rationally and make the right good decisions based on reality. But that's just not how humans work. Humans filter information through pre-existing values and respond emotionally. And their emotional responses are usually through the prism, the distorting prism of other values and competing interests that they have. So I have moved largely away from actually doing science and I, and I write in ways that are designed to move people emotionally with information. And so that is the thing that I see as the, um, the complete overlap with all of this work is that I, I believe, you can each tell me if I'm wrong, but I believe that you each are interested in evoking emotional responses, not informing people or not just letting people know what your response to something is, but you would like your response and your work to create an emotional response and, a, and some connection in, in the viewer, because you're all visual artists, so it's a viewer in each of your cases. So I would like to ha hear some of uh, the responses from the artists uh, to this statement, and I know that all of you work um, on these topics, but from different points of views and from a different personal attachment to the, these issues and, and it manifests in different ways. So maybe Lillian, as uh, I would say you're an activist, uh, maybe you can speak to that and then I would like to hear from actually all of you about your work. Um, I think one of the things that is so um, crucial about Carl's work and about most work that um, moves me um, is that you're, you're, you're making this connection, an emotional connection to information. In my work, I try to educate at the same time, uh, you know, to, to have videos that, that say, okay, the iris prismatica is a threatened rare plant that we have in this area, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not the only point. The point is to make people care. 
And so it's a very, it's a big challenge to get the data out there. And most scientists that I have worked with or that, whose work I'm drawn to realize that. Somebody like Gus Beth, you know, certainly makes it very clear that we, you know, we need to go forward not maybe with more lawsuits, but with more environmental education and making people care. That's the bottom line. So you, you do work with scientists, Lillian. Can you speak about that experience, how that collaboration... How bad is it for you? Uh, you <laughs> I didn't want to say that. <laughs> well, it depends on if you're talking about an old-school uh, engineer. Or I've, I've, I usually pick my own teams. I try to coordinate my own groups that I work with. Um, if I'm the lead, if I'm the lead on, on a project, say the Water Watch project on the Bronx River, I was the lead. And I picked the people I wanted to work with. I picked the place I wanted to work. And I did hire an environmental engineer who I could, a hydrological engineer who I could really work with. But I've, I've had a lot of fights with, uh, with, with some of the engineers, say, in South Old Town. <laughs> and, Is that because they don't take you seriously as an artist? No, um. that's, they, they don't care about art. They care about the science. But you know, the, way the, the way the science plays out is like permeable pavement and native plants are very basic kinds of things. It's not rocket science. And uh, you know, getting people to do, I, I thought I would embarrass the officials into doing more of those kinds of stormwater remediations. It didn't quite work out that way because the engineers decided they, you know, that it wasn't really necessary to do this. That it was perfectly fine to have hydrocarbons and all sorts of stormwater runoff going from our fertilized fields into the waterways um, of South Hill Town. And you know, those kinds of things are hard to, it's all about values, so those kinds of things are hard right. to dispute. Uh, no, I really enjoyed, most of the scientists I've worked with, I find very creative thinkers. Thank you, Lillian. I would like to turn to Scott, and in particular, the uh, drawing of the integrated um, energy producing machine, which I find really interesting, which is actually here in the museum, and you can see this after this talk. Um, is that based on scientific research? And then I would also like to hear Carl's reaction to that proposal, because that seems to be, it, it's on the one hand, it looks very fantastical and, and imaginary, but it also seems to be grounded in some actual scientific uh, data. Right, so that design in particular, I want to actually stress that my general philosophy is that technology is not going to save us. It can help in our problem. Uh, it can help with a lot of different things, but I think people are mistaken when they think that, oh, wind turbines are gonna save the planet or solar power is gonna save the planet. I mean, and really, if there's gonna be change, it has to be systemic and it has to be actually reductionary. So we have to reduce everything. And technology like wind turbines or solar power, or wave power, or even a new idea like kelp aquaculture in the ocean, it does contribute to a certain idea that maybe we could be better off this way. But I think that what I was trying to do and in integrate all these things together was show that we need to kind of think outside the box in terms of what's possible. And if we have existing infrastructure, we should make it as efficient as possible while hitting different needs that we might need, including energy production, which, I mean, like it or not, I think our world is gonna rely on power for this foreseeable future. So, but also when you add in kelp aquaculture to an existing platform, that actually, that, that design is based on a certain 
It's actually based on a design from uh, several researchers in the 1970s who are looking at kelp as biofuels, which we're just getting back into today. And also it's based on taking a uh, oil platform and actually repurposing it. So the idea is you're repurposing existing infrastructure and really enhancing it for what we need now in the 22nd century to fight climate change. That's so. really interesting. So is that something that you would like to take further? Let's say, would you want to work with scientists and yeah, technologists? Um, and then I would like to hear Carl's um, reaction well, to I, that. Well, I, th I found that piece, like, like many of the things that we saw in different ways, but I found that very delightful to see because a, a scientific team might write a 100-page report about all these various alternative forms of energy that could be integrated with producing f food and uh, maybe biomass and maybe repurposing oil rigs or something like that. And all the information would be in there, and no one would read it, probably. <laughs> and then one artist can put all that information in one image, and you can all see it, and you kind of get it. And you instantly, like we're right now, start talking about it. So it doesn't have all the technical details about what that might take to actually create it, but it has all the ideas about what the outcomes and opportunities and possibilities could be. So that's, that's I think, a fantastic marriage of, uh, of art and uh, information. Uh, as, far as, as far as technology isn't going to be the thing that saves us, all technology serves the values of its society. So it's, it's the values. Absolutely. And I think what's interesting is that there is a new appreciation today about creativity in general in, you know, and artists. And, uh, for example, uh, there are governments now that work with artists. Uh, New York City uh, Department of Sanitation, of Health, of Corrections have now residences for artists Obviously, these artists have to have a certain knowledge of the topics that they're dealing with, and I would think that's the same with science. If you're going to work with an artist, you would probably expect that they have some kind of a knowledge of uh, what you were talking about. But I think it has to be mutual. It has to be also that science accepts and respects and understands that what art can do, that it can bring creativity in trying to find solutions. Yeah, I, th I think there's a lot of that, I a lot of openness and a lot of acceptance. And my not-for-profit group is the creative end of the environmental conservation group spectrum. We, when I think of who we have, it's, it's essentially all artists. There, some are visual, some, some paint, some are phot photographic, some are writers, one is a sound artist. All of them have scientifically accurate information being conveyed, but it's being conveyed in very creative formats. So I'm, I'm you know, obviously I'm sitting here because I'm totally on board with this whole idea and the whole marriage and the fact that you need both information and an emotional connection. Yeah, I think, I, I, I don't find that there are many scientists who are closed to the idea. I think there are many scientists who don't know how to make the bridge or don't feel like that's their job, but they really enjoy it when they see it and you know are very supportive of it, I think. I don't, yeah, I I don't sense much resistance in the scientists that I know at all. I think that's the main problem to solve, or the main um, hurdle is to uh, bring these two 
departments together, like art and science. Mm -hmm. Well, exactly. They're That's they're trying true. to find solutions. They're they're looking at the questions of our existence, right? But in very different ways. I would like to turn to Janet because Janet, you have been working on these issues for the longest. Uh, I believe some 60 years or or even longer than that. And what prompted you back then? I mean, not many people were talking about environmental issues when you started making your art. I had a personal yeah. experience. We were canoeing down on uh, a little river in Pennsylvania, western Pennsylvania, and my dad and my brother, and we're having a lovely time, and suddenly the clear green water turns orange, and there are these particles of rock floating in them. Pennsylvania was known for the coal mines, the tailings, and all of this kind of crud, uh, and what they called uh, strip mining. So that's been largely corrected to, to some degree. I mean, the, the coal mining hasn't, but they're still being forced to do restitution. So I must have been eight or nine, and I, I became an environmentalist that day. I didn't even know what such a thing was, but all of the uh, nature was so important to me, and I uh, would get very angry. I think I consider myself sort of a realist, because all the pieces uh, that I've done that are pointed directly at environmental were things that I found in New York Times has been terrific with the environment lately and Nature Magazine and the Sierra Club and Greenpeace. And I, I was ex uh, very pleased to come across this book on uh, Ecotage, where Dave Foreman and this group of people would go out and they would uh, call on these uh, uh, companies and prove to them that they were polluting. They put a uh, lid on the top of the uh, furnace of the uh, factory and everything backed up. And uh, there was a man called the Fox out in uh, Ohio and he would go out and do these divert streams and change. This was the kind of thing that, of course, the FBI finally got into this and grabbed these people. But they were making things, at least they were drawing attention to these things. Now, I didn't have that kind of uh, courage, but I would take an idea that I would see or read about, and I would put it in a painting. And I would have to make it, I hoped, in a form that was interesting to look at because it wasn't a, a, a diagram, it was something that, that had to still have appeal in a tactile sense, in a color sense. So that was part of what I was trying to do, get that balance. Has your work changed over the years, uh, or how do you think awareness about the environment has changed, and, uh, or, and has that changed yeah. your work? I did feel that for a while I was just uh, screaming all by myself. And I think there's a lot going on now. People are really picking up on this. I mean, but the thing is, something disastrous has to happen before there's any reaction. That's what's so distressing. But a lot of disasters are happening. Yeah. yeah. No, I would have to change once. I'd like to do a billboard series, and I did a series with textures, and I did uh, some ink works. It, I think you have to be uh, flexible and change a bit to keep your own work fresh. Right. Yeah. Irina. I found it very interesting that you uh, changed from being much more of a figurative painter to um, investigating sort of our DNA, our origins, uh, the organisms and so forth. What, made, what prompted you for that change? It just happened. It was a natural kind of evolution. I, I wanted to move away from, from written history because I felt... I wanted to connect more to the environment around me and to what is essentially being alive, I guess. And I didn't feel that it had to do with, with uh, societal structures. I felt it had to do with something much more abstract that was s subliminal and subconscious and, and um, like the way that you respond to, you know, something sharp that's next to you versus something soft or 
how you how you um, uh, feel next to a tall mountain versus being on a on a on a you know on a field. And I realized that we're very connect we are through our through our beings very connected to the earth. And I wanted to explore that. And I think that it's important for people to remember how connected they are. And I guess that that for me that's that's um, I hope when somebody looks at my work they kind of stop for a second that maybe they feel more you know more aware of themselves as entities on the planet versus like I feel people are removed from their bodies a lot in in our world right now and so I guess I'm I'm being more sensory right and I think something that uh, what you said uh, resonates very much with what Carl keep saying is that that everything is connected and that very often we don't see these connections and that both scientists and artists uh, make these connections um, visible. Can you speak a bit more about on that, on how everything is connected? And well, I, I mean, I think it's um, everybody here, hold your breath for four minutes. <laughs> we, we think that we're not connected to the world and, and everything in it and each other, it's very strange that we ever think that because we're, we're a constant interchange. We're, we're made individuals really mostly by our memories and the material mostly changes in our bodies, some of it daily, some of it over years. The gases go in and out, in and out constantly. You can't stop that for more than a very few minutes or the entity that is you dies. And that's a really amazing thing that if you simply stop breathing for a few minutes, all of your functioning ends. And immediately, all the bacteria that are on you and at you all the time begin to decompose you into a putrid pile. When you're alive, you are constantly able to keep your place in this functioning existence that is this very strange thing. And we forget this constantly all the time. There's a good reason to forget it and there's a bad reason to forget it. The bad reason is that we have no idea who we are, where we are, where we come from, why we're here, and we don't bother thinking about it. That's the bad reason. And it, so it's very good to be reminded of this all the time. The, the good reason is if we thought about this all the time, we would never be able to do anything because it's so astonishing and it's so completely unbelievable. It's so, it's so awesome and so mysterious that you would just lie there and you would say, ah, all the time, which would be a good thing to do for a while, maybe half an hour in the morning. But uh, yes, exactly. But you know, you have to sort of check out of it a little bit so that you can go to the bank and get groceries and you know buy stamps and stuff like that. Uh, but, uh, but most people simply never check in with it. And this is not only a shame because we lose the sacredness of existence, but it's a catastrophe because of the consequences of that loss. It's good to be reminded, thank you. But I want to dig a little bit deeper. When you say that at the, at the Safina Center, you do work with artists. Is that mostly artists who sort of do visualization of data or illustration of the scientific work? Or are you actually interested in collaborating with artists mm -hmm. to find 
scientific solutions? We, it's, it's neither in okay. our case. We look for people whose work has gotten on my radar, basically, and then we invite a few of them, because that's all the funding we have, to be fellows in our okay. center. And I don't want to be anybody's boss or tell them what to do or anything. I, I've done that. I'm over it. I like to work with and around people whose work I like. And so we find these people, and they may be painting about the natural world or about the human connection with the natural world. For instance, we had Chris Jordan for a few years as a fellow. A photographer? He's a photographer and filmmaker, but... His earlier work, which is what really first attracted me, was about the scale of human activity. And so he would do things like take a number of cigarette butts that represents how many cigarettes people in a certain area town or a city or something smoke every day, and then he would arrange the cigarette butts to look like Mona Lisa. Or, or do, you know, do something like that with things that represent the scale of human activity. It was v very unusual and unique, but you know, like it wasn't taking data and visualizing the data. It wasn't anything that technical. And we have a guy, for instance, one of our fellows records natural sounds, but he's a beatboxer where he creates, he uses natural sounds to create these streams of sound and rhythm that overlap it's an art form. It's called beatboxing. M some of you, many of you probably know of it. Some of you probably don't know of it. But it, because it, it's grounded in reality, and Chris's work was grounded in reality. All these people's work is grounded in reality. One, one person we have, she paints portraits of individual primates that she cares for in monkey and ape orphanages in Cameroon and um, one other place in Africa. But they're individuals. It's not just this is a, you know, this is a chimpanzee. This is so and so the chimpanzee. And our tagline is making a case for life on Earth. And you know, and I welcome people who do that in different ways. So that's that's what I meant by that. Or Ned Rothenberg, who plays David Rothenberg, Rothenberg who, who plays uh, duets, the clarinet. He plays the clarinet with nightingales. Yes. Right. Right. People like that, yeah. I suggest everybody should go check out the Sakina Center. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Jack Winter did that with wolves. What? Jack Winter. He had a Paul Winter. Paul Winter. Yes, he's he's um. We have fellows and we have people we call creative affiliates who are yeah. s senior mentor advisory sort of people, and Paul Winter is one of those. He's a very great spirit, really. He was the first to make music with a non-human, with whales, with the songs of humpback whales in the in seventies, yeah. So there are many different ways of interaction yes. and, and expressing what science, science is actually all about. We are really uh, facing a, a climate crisis, I would say, and I, I would just like, I mean, we, from everything that we hear and that we know, and I would just like to ask each of you how that's influencing the work that you're envisioning in the, next, uh, in the near future. So maybe first asking the artists, I mean, Janet, you've been working for so long on this. What is that? Do you feel that? I, I do feel uh, despair occasionally. And uh, I've turned to a painting and it's, it gets blacker and blacker and blacker. And I've got a few like that. And then I put them aside 
and I look out and I see a gorgeous sunset. And I say, today I'm going to have a, a nice break. I'm going to paint this. And I will, uh, I will take a break from it because I don't think I can uh, endure just relentless pessimism. You have to get a balance of it. But uh, I'm, I'm not terribly optimistic. Scott. Well, I don't think it's very useful to dwell in despair. I think we have an, enough uh, visual imagery in the world that's kind of doing that for us. So for me, <laughs> I come from a much more hopeful place where we think about things that we haven't thought about, maybe just for a long time. I think there's a lot of ancient knowledge that is coming more and more towards the public consciousness, and that includes, obviously, respect for the natural world. So for me, that's kind of number one. And number two, materials, um, uh, animals, um, things that maybe a lot of people don't really know about. Again, like kelps and mushrooms, I should say seaweed, mushrooms, algae, hemp even, uh, things that we have just begun to understand the potential of to help replace our industrialized world. So for me, materials and design are a huge aspect, I think, of what I'm really hopeful about. There was a terrific exhibition at the Cooper Hewitt uh, yeah. with a lot of... Uh, yeah solution, new materials, uh, creativity in design and, and technology, so yeah. yeah. Oh, and um, yeah, I mean, I'm always focusing on solutions and things that we know are natural that we need to do that our modern westernized capitalistic society in particular is uh, has just ignored for far too long and we're paying the consequences for. So I want to step outside boxes and also emphasize that it's not inevitable. I don't think anything is truly inevitable. We uh, have done a lot of damage, I think, to our world, but we're actively addressing that. And I think we're in a time of great transformation that we're going to see a lot of that transformation actually be realized. I like so. to hear that from our youngest panelist. <laughs> we should have ended with you. <laughs> anyway, Irina. I, I do, sometimes I do feel despair. But on some level, I'm also hopeful. But it's not, it's not really based in any kind of uh, facts, really, the hopefulness, um, unlike Scott. But I don't know where I'm going next with my work. I, I don't know. It, I didn't know when I did those transitions that you saw. I just sort of keep working, and then I see something starting to change, and I go with it. And it can take me a couple of years. And so I, I really don't know where it will go. So I'm sorry, I don't have a more specific answer for you. That's a perfect answer from an artist, I okay. think. Okay. Lillian? <laughs> well, from my perspective, uh, when I found out about what was happening with wetlands and how much destruction there was worldwide, that's when I started to say, oh, I don't think I want to be an artist anymore. I have to be an activist. <laughs> There's too much at stake here. But then, I, but then I, as I realized more and more Artists can be visionaries. That's one of the things that I responded to in both Janet and, and um, Scott's work, that, that, that artists can influence a community. Uh, you know, I got involved with land preservation when I moved to Southold because I, I was so, so concerned about these places that were disappearing. And also in Nepal. I mean, it's, it's to me, I think there's a real synergy that can happen now between um, communities scientists and creative thinkers and and that 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 is what really interests me the most now and going forward in my own work is how can you tap into those kinds of you know community 
histories that are all there. I mean, you look at something like the East End, which, you know, I'm very, very committed to being here now. And you look at the East End, you look at Lazy Point, Carl wrote a great book, which is one of my favorites, which goes through the series of months with what you can see. And basically, even though it's an old book, you can still see a lot of those things. <laughs> All right, it's maybe, what, 15 years old, something like uh, it's that? It's going to be 10. 10? Okay. All right. But nevertheless, I think it is really important for us as a community to be in touch with how we keep these special places that we have here, how uh, we try to preserve them, how we try to understand them and appreciate them, work like also Peter Matheson, whose work I'm very fond of, Men's Lives, which is the history of what the East End was about and is now gone. So I, I, I think that, that that kind of sense in these smaller places is why I moved out of New York City. I see this tremendous hope on, in places like ours, which are small and have um, a relatively educated public that can say, no, stop. And I, I believe very strongly in, in the power of the community to make this kind of interconnection between politics and economics and art and culture. And to say, this is what our values are. This is what, I, this is what we believe in. And hopefully that will continue to grow. Yeah, and I think it's important for institutions like ours or other cultural institutions to be a platform for these uh, interactions, for these conversations. And I would like to end with Carl, and then we'll okay. open it up to uh, Q&A. I, I think E.B. White, I can't remember, I think E.B. White said that he, he, wakes up, he woke up every day torn between whether to save or savor the world, and that that made it hard to plan his day. And I often have the feeling when I'm working of bleakness and I several times a week I read something that is so unbelievably bad that I never imagined I would read something like that and then I walk outside and the day is still happening and there's a few birds calling and the dogs want to go for a run and everything seems fine and both of those things are true together. I think hope is something that is, um, I think, misunderstood by people, because some people think hope is just wishing for something and, and very, very passive. And I, I think wishing and hoping are different things. To me, hope is the ability to see how something can be better. And I think that hope motivates all effort. So I think that if you're simply aiming at any goal to try to improve anything, that's a, that's a hopeful act. So I'm very hopeful in that way, but I'm also a really big picture person, and I see some pretty terrible things happening at very large scale. And, you know, they also, well, the other thing I was gonna say is that we, our sense of time is very distorted by our lifespans. We think 200 years is a long time. I, I often think it would be really interesting if there was somehow, in some fantasy world, a thousand-year-old person, would not the Mel Brooks one, though, um, <laughs> would appear and you know, give us their serious perspective on 
what it is we should all be doing based on a lifespan of 1,000 years or 500 years or 5,000 years. So we think 200 years is a long time, but we're, we're changing the world at a rate that is instantaneous and really large. And some idea of the instantaneousness of things uh, in, our, in our sense of time scale was brought home to me recently uh, because my wife Patricia, who's sitting over there, gave me a book about dinosaurs for Christmas last year. And she handed me this book and she says, here, you should read this. It's about dinosaurs. You don't have to do anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, so I loved that. And um, I mean, who has to care about dinosaurs? It's great. And, I, and I'm reading this book about dinosaurs. And you know, we, many of us know that dinosaurs went extinct after an asteroid strike about 65 million years ago. And that seems like a really long time. But then I'm reading and I realize that dinosaurs existed for 300 million years before they went extinct. In other words, they were around for many more spans of time than the span of time since the extinction of the dinosaurs, which we think is a long time ago. Dinosaurs had the same skeleton we have, they had the same organs we have. We're very similar to dinosaurs because it wasn't that long ago. And a lot had happened already to get them to the point where they got to, which is very similar to where we are now. But we think 200 years is a long time. And we're changing everything instantaneously. And, and a lot is at stake on this planet, the only planet that we know of, despite people who spent their lives looking at the universe for any sign of any other life anywhere, and they don't see it anywhere. This is, this is it, as far as we know. And we don't take that seriously enough. So, you know, sometimes I just feel really terrible about things and I step outside and everything is great and I, and I, I think it, it's crucial for us to all maintain a balance and not to, not to kid ourselves and think everything will be okay and somebody will take care of it, but also, also not to kid ourselves and think that everything is bleak and everything is going to die because we don't know and it really just depends on what people do and we're people, so. Thank you. Um, I would like to open it up to questions for any of the panelists, all the way in the back. So, in terms of solutions, uh, I'm part of a group called Drawdown Instead, and we're very interested in this. And um, one of the things that it seems like is a huge solution is getting out of nature's way to uh, allow going beyond the concept of conservation preservation to that regeneration. Teleforming is an example of something where it looks like it has tremendous promise to use photosynthesis to, um, to sequester carbon and do all the beneficial things But I'm interested in asking you, Carl, about how do you imagine, because I know you've got so 
Well, I'll try to be briefer. There's just way too many of us to get out of nature's way. We're, we're very much in the way of each other and the rest of the natural world. I, I think that we've all, over the last few decades, you know, my adult life, our adult life, we've seen tremendous strides toward understanding better our place and you know, the environmental movement and the, the green movement and the fact that all these things are recognized, but we can't get to them because we're running faster and faster on the same treadmill. Every year, we, we add about 70 million people to the world. We're gonna add a few billion more, another India, another China. I mean, this is a, it's an impossibility equation Everybody wants more. You can't, you can't have more if you have to slice it up smaller and smaller. You want a bigger piece of pie, you have to sit at a less crowded table. And the, really, the only lever that will make any of this really possible, despite improvements in agriculture and improvements in energy, is that the human population has to shrink dramatically. And the the big secret, and, and the way that that's been done has been horrible. Uh, this is not shorter, I'm sorry. Um, you know, very coercive tactics in India and China that took the debate completely off the table because it was handled so badly. But big secret of wealthy people, everybody around the world wants to be wealthy. All the poor people want to be wealthy. Middle class people want to be wealthy. The, the big secret of people like us who are all wealthy is that we know that smaller families make for bigger lives and we make our life choices accordingly. It's just a voluntary choice. If you look at the pattern of population growth around the world, what you tend to see is that the, the developed countries have flattening or even slightly declining population rates. And that's largely because of the advances over about the last 60 years in cit women's citizenship and women's empowerment, where women can get educated, own businesses, inherit money and property, uh, run for office and things like that. And in, in those countries, population is not out of control. And I, I, I think that that is simply the lever and the answer. If anybody wants to make the world a better place and work on one thing, I think that status of women is the thing. It's number four, isn't it, on the drawdown list? Five or six, maybe educating women and girls. So it's not only in developing, it's not only in yeah. developed countries, but in. But I don't think it's I don't like the phrase educating women and girls because then what are they going to do? That it's, it's, it is, I, the, the empowerment is the thing. I mean, women have to be citizens. Everybody has to be an equal citizen everywhere. It's just a matter of human justice and 
The lucky thing about that and the environment is that the biggest problem for the environment and the biggest injustice in the world, which is the almost universal imbalance between the power of men against women, they both have exactly the same solution, which is citizenship for women, full citizenship. I'd like to know why the uh, religious leaders and the politicians never address overpopulation or the fact of family planning. Very oh, they address it. <laughs> they address it, but they address it in the exact wrong way. Um, I've talked too much already, so uh, I'm not. I think we should end on um, the hopeful note that we've heard from several of our from our artists tonight, and I really encourage you to go see the artwork. Thank you.